CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by Siemens Smart Grid. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sunjog All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjog All. Good morning and welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTR Live, and look for this show as hashtag leadership. Today's topic is judgment as the essence of leadership. And our guest for today's show is Professor Francesca Gino, who is the Harvard Business School professor. And she's also the author of the book, Sidetracked, Why Our Decisions Get Derailed and How We Can Stick to the Plan. Welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm very good. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Great. And now we've done topics on decision-making before, but we thought the idea of making judgment calls was very intriguing. And it's the uncertainty and the conflicting demands that make our decisions harder and can make make or break a leader is what we thought is the basis why we should have this discussion. And as the first question, uh, Francesca, for you is that organizations may be making bad decisions every day whether they are driving by competing interests or erroneous assumptions, insufficient time, or inaccurate or spotty information. There are countless ways to miss a decision-making mark. Should we just keep living with this paranoia, or can we realistically do something about it? This is a question that obviously I have done a lot of research on, and it's a very important question. Decision-making is tricky, and for our leaders, uh, decision-making can be even more complex. As you were saying, they often have a competing interest. Uh, they don't always make correct assumptions, and they have a lot of trade-offs that they need to consider in their decision-making. But I do think that there is something that they can do about it. And, in fact, the reason why I wrote Sidetracked is to explore ways in which uh, better decision-making is actually possible. So in, in my book and in my research over the last 10, 15 years, I studied a lot of situations where leaders make decisions and they get off track and end up with outcomes that they actually regret. And I identified a set of different principles that they can use uh, when they're making decisions. So I do believe that there are different ways in which they can mitigate the impact of uh, potential biases or erroneous assumptions that they're making in their decision-making. And the process needs to start by understanding the factors that tend to sway their decisions uh, when they're facing complex situations. Now, based on your response, I mean, let's take the example of a leader who is at the top and, of course, kind of lonely sometimes where they don't have as many people to bounce their ideas with. Or maybe if they do, everybody or, or at least most of them would come with their own agendas and not in a negative way. But, of course, they want to see the whole organization succeed. But you never know. How much do you think this leader can really make it gut-based and or empirical data-based and or input provided by the others-based? Yeah, as it turns out, by studying leaders' decisions, what I uh, tend to see is that oftentimes the leaders make decisions uh, based on their own thinking and judgment, and they're actually oftentimes less to listen to the perspective and opinions that others have to offer. 
And this can actually be a mistake because others, by the very fact that there are other people who look at the same situation with different eyes, that they might actually have a different perspective or different opinions to offer. So what my research suggests is that when uh, leaders face difficult decisions, they often tend to give too much weight to their own thinking and to their own instincts, and they're less um, not open enough to listening to the perspective that others bring um, that, as I said, can be quite different from theirs and offer new information or new details that might be helpful in the decision-making process. Now, when you mentioned that most most of the times these leaders would do it, now, does that put them in a bad light that they don't trust others or have they not built a trusting relationship with everyone so that they inherently feel that no matter what anybody else says, I'm going to stick to my guns? It's not always about trust. Interestingly, leaders, but really uh, most of us, have a tendency to think too highly of our competence and skills. Uh, so if you look at um, executives and managers, and again, most of us, if you ask uh, to think about our own competence and skills compared to the skills and competence of others, we tend to be too positive uh, in our own views. So we think that we're better than others at making decisions. We are think uh, we're better than others at analyzing data. We're also thinking that we're better than others other than being trustworthy uh, and reliable decision-makers. And so that tendency to think that we are so good on so many dimensions oftentimes uh, come in the way of actually listening to the perspective of others. And what is interesting is that as we um, climb the ladder in organizations and we assume leadership position, that tendency to think very highly of ourselves and to discount the perspective of others becomes even more exacerbated. So the powers that we might feel because of our leadership position make us even more vulnerable to that tendency of thinking too highly of our own competence and ability to make good decisions. Now, based on your response, I'm sure uh, some some of our listeners who may feel that they are more humble than how it is being portrayed, they might be cringing at the thought that, okay, am I the one who is just driving uh, blindly in, in the direction where my head is, whereas I'm not, and also I'm not looking at anybody else, whatever they say. Do you think that you, what you've said right now is a gross generalization? Is it happening more often than not, or you are primarily telling this is an exception versus the norm? No, I think it's a tendency that we uh, tend to have. What differentiates uh, some leaders from others is their ability to realize that, that these type of tendencies actually affect our decisions. So, for example, in the book, going back to what I was saying earlier, I discussed principles that we can use to stay on track, and one of these principles is called raise your awareness. And is as simple as realizing that, in fact, we do have these tendencies of thinking too highly about our competence and capability, and they can come in the way of good decision-making. And so with that realization and that awareness, we can keep our uh, views in check when we're making good decisions and really asking ourselves whether we are giving enough consideration to the information and perspective that others are providing. At some point, we'll make bad decisions, and hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. So when yeah. we look back, we always say, oh, I wish I had thought of this parameter or that uh, fundamental area. And I should have spoken to uh, somebody within my team. When did that this happen 
frankly, the organization which you're representing bears the cost. And, and of course, who is there to blame because we are all human beings, we can make mistakes. So we can say, oops, I'm sorry. Or there are ways to basically consciously start beating the odds so that you are not causing uh, you know, dollars and goodwill and other type of losses to your organization as a result of your bad decision making. A big motivation of the research that I do and a big motivation behind writing Sidetrack was uh, the fact that I, I think we can reflect on uh, the mistakes that we made in the past when our decisions got derailed and we can do better in the future. And what I mean by that is by really applying concretely the principles that I'm talking about in the book, we can have better processes in the future. So let me give you a concrete example. Uh, so we were talking about the fact that as human beings, uh, we tend to have these very positive views of our competence and abilities. And as leaders, since we're often powerful, that tendency is exacerbated. I worked with uh, a company a while back uh, in the pharmaceutical industry where uh, the team uh, was very well aware of this problem. And so what they've done, every time they were judging, uh, in this case, uh, drugs in development and what to do with them, whether to allocate more resources, whether to kill the drug, whether to put it forward into the development process, they structured the team meetings such that they would have various people involved in them some of which had the data because they were actually working on the drugs, but some of them were more of the, uh, let's say, the devil's advocate's uh, perspective, and their, um, their role in the team was to really ask very hard questions about the data just to make sure that uh, these positive tendencies that we have in the way we think about our competence uh, were not coming in the way of um, making uh, wrong allocation decisions in terms of the resources that they were allocating. So I think that companies, uh, like in this case, they can set the processes that can allow leaders and everybody else in the team to actually make better decisions. Now, let me take example from our real lives. For example, if I have a health problem, I would still go ahead and try to eat that fatty and greasy food, which will actually hurt me. But it, since it's just me making a decision, I could go in that direction. But if I make my family be looking and watching out wherever I'm, I'm getting tempted, they check me, then I'm less likely to make that erroneous decision, which is going to hurt us. Now, taking that same and drawing a parallel, do you think an organization can have a culture where the decision maker or the person at the top could treat the rest of the people as family and actually give them the authority to come and check uh, that decision maker or the leader at the top whenever they are getting tempted to make a wrong decision? Especially when organizations are very large, going to that extreme uh, might be particularly difficult, but you could imagine the leaders not being alone uh, making decisions, but having a team of senior managers, for example, uh, checking on him and asking the right questions and providing a different perspective than looking at the same problem. So I think that uh, maybe not to the extremes that you were mentioning, but uh, having other people checking on us 
uh, could work also in organizations. And uh, I worked with organizations in the past where they had a similar uh, structure. Um, the cases I'm thinking about were smaller organizations, but where you as a leader or even the CEO, you have a group of people, trusted people that uh, you know are going to question your decisions and try to always provide new information or a different perspective. Now, on, on one hand, you, of course, see if this is possible, that family style of somebody checking on you. Another is to go for the collective decision making. One hand, you are more likely to make informed decisions which have a higher, perhaps higher percentage of accuracy and you will go in the right direction. But it also can slow you down. And in this day and age, when you have business agility as the biggest mantra that we are all trying to follow, do you think this is going to be more of a damper when you try to get the team or a group to start making every decision which has some material value? I think that too often uh, when I uh, walk into organizations or I talk to executives, I hear uh, this issue of we are under time pressure, we don't always have a lot of time to make decisions, uh, and so we tend not to consult others. And I understand the complexity uh, of issues that leaders and, and managers need to deal with and that oftentimes you don't have all the time in the world to actually make decisions. But I think that this tendency of relying on uh, your gut or instincts in terms of how to proceed uh, can be problematic. And I think that more thought needs to be given to testing uh, our gut uh, reactions or instincts to just make sure that uh, we have enough information to make good decisions. And so the idea of at least asking others for their opinions and for their perspectives could be quite valuable. Let's take a quick break, listeners. When we come back, uh, we should look at the value of accurate data that may be made available timely and in a consumable fashion and what impact can it have on decision-making. And if we make a poor choice, then does that mean that we can easily then blame on the data or there are other factors? Even though you had accurate data, why did you still make a bad decision? Who should be blamed? Who should be held accountable? Let's explore this when you come back. Please stay tuned. Take a look around. Is anyone in your office listening to music on a boombox? <laughs> Probably not. Because you stream radio through the cloud like a normal, well-adjusted person living in the 21st century. Know what else you can get through the cloud? Your business phone system. Yeah, switch to cloud-based Ring Central. Run your entire business phone system online and use it with your smartphone and tablet for as little as $19.99 a month per user. And then you can put that old PBX in the junk pile next to the boombox. Ring Central, phone systems reimagined. Sign up for a free trial at ringcentral.com. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sun Joe All. To learn more about the show 
please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. So let's look at what is the possibility of us building a better decision-making uh, environment by providing accurate data that could be made available in a timely and consumable fashion. And if, if we really do that, do you think we can always isolate a poor decision-making to this data uh, made available, or there are other factors which could uh, slip through the cracks and cause issues regardless? I think that independent on the amount of data that you have in front of you, when thinking about what makes uh, leaders good decision maker versus poor decision maker, I think that there are a couple of differentiating factors that I can identify based on my research. One is that uh, good leaders, but also good decision makers, tend to be more aware. So if I think about all the forces that can sway our decisions that I discuss in the book, I think good leaders are aware of the fact that they exist, and they're better at considering how they can, in fact, come in the way of good decision-making. And the second differentiator is that I think that good leaders who are also good decision-makers tend to be more reflective and better planner. And what I mean by that is that they can anticipate uh, the ways in which these forces are going to sway their decisions, and so they account of them by setting up processes that can help them make the decisions. So let's think, for example, uh, about... Uh, one decision that happened a while back when uh, the founder of Yahoo was thinking about uh, whether or not to reject an offer from Microsoft by Yahoo. So this was uh, early 2008. And a lot of had been written about this offer, and Yang actually ended up rejecting it. And maybe it's not too surprising, Yang was attached to Yahoo because he was one of the founders, so in a sense he was uh, a little bit like his baby. Um, and uh, some of the critics that have looked at this decision have mentioned the fact that the emotional part of Yang really didn't want to sell to Microsoft. And so he ended up actually rejecting an offer that in the eyes of Manning was a very, very good offer. So uh, obviously this is a very complex decision, but you could imagine uh, being more aware and reflective on the fact that emotions could sway our decision could have helped Young realize that part of the reason why he was so uh, upset about the offer was the fact that uh, he was emotionally attached to what he created. Uh, so I think that uh, even when we have... Uh, a lot of data in front of us, we could still be swayed uh, and end up with poor outcomes if we do not carefully consider and are aware of the forces that can come in the way of good decision-making. Now, imagine being at the seat of a CEO or any other board member, say, for an organization, and you see a leader making decisions while we invest the time, dollars, and, and, and energy in providing all the necessary data. But then these people would take that, and yes, perhaps they will take them into account, but turn a little emotional. Or sometimes they'll make right decisions, sometimes they'll not make the best decisions. What level of patience and immunity do these people at the top hold? in order for that person to be given enough chances, because nobody can claim that they can make every decision 100% of the time appropriate and accurate. 
Yeah, so the question that you're asking is a very important question, and it's really a question about do we forgive mistakes or do we fire, fire people because of the mistakes that they're making? And I think that there are a lot of uh, cases in the press nowadays that should make us reflect on, on that question. Uh, one recent example is actually uh, the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, uh, firing some of the people that were behind creating the maps that didn't perform uh, on par uh, compared to what it was expected. So uh, in my research, in looking at different organizations, uh, there seems to be a lot of value in creating a culture where mistakes can actually happen and they are forgiven. Now, obviously, you don't want to have people who keep on making mistakes, but you should allow them uh, to experiment uh, and, and do make some mistakes uh, uh, because the decisions that we're facing are often complex and we shouldn't expect people to be uh, perfect. I should also say that when looking at the data, especially on, on leaders and, and their doing in leading their companies and their teams, oftentimes when things go wrong, we tend to blame the leader for uh, the fact that the outcomes were not good. And in fact, the circumstances might have been uh, so difficult that it would have been impossible for a leader to actually uh, make good decisions. So oftentimes we, uh, you would see board members uh, recommending that the leader get fired, uh, or you could think about sports teams uh, recommending that the coach gets fired because of poor performance, when in fact there were other factors that led to poor performance uh, and the leader is getting the blame. Now, suppose uh, I was sitting with someone in a, in a uh, casual setting and talking about decision-making on how I would make a decision in a certain situation, and then we are in that situation. The mindset of a person who is, is sitting in a, in a non-threatening situation or non-crisis is entirely different than when they are in, in that mess, if at all there is a mess. So with that said, do you think the natural DNA of a leader resurfaces when they are put in a situation which is truly not the most convenient one, and that's where they behave the way they will actually end up behaving anyways, or you can change that very DNA no matter what the situation is? I am uh, a believer that uh, leaders aren't necessarily born uh, as good decision makers, but uh, there is a lot of science about making good decisions, and I think that a lot of it can be learned by leaders. Um, so as I was saying earlier, one of the big motivations in writing Sidetracked was the idea of helping leaders who are uh, maybe good but not excellent decision maker to think more carefully about the, the forces that can lead them astray and also figure out have concrete ways really to account for these forces uh, going into the future. So I think that uh, if you think about the person's real DNA, that might be easy uh, to see at time of difficulties or time of crisis. Uh, but I think the important point that I want to stress is that uh, leaders vary in their ability to make good decisions, but they can improve by being more aware of what leads them off track uh, and by applying the type of principles that I talk about in the book. Now, with that said, question uh, is regarding the people strategy and crisis. These are the three main areas, it seems, where when a leader makes appropriate decisions and has more accuracy in those decisions, then the organization benefits and, and their career also takes off. 
But then if we look at all of these three areas and assume that we provide them all the necessary data that they may be looking for, what else could come into play where one decision maker who has right data versus an organization is also conducive to help them making mistakes, everything remaining equal, what could make a person make not as good a decision in all of these three areas? Yeah, so we were talking a little bit earlier about the fact that oftentimes, even when we have complete data in front of us, we end up making decisions that are not the appropriate one or they're not uh, the decisions that are going to allow us to reach the goals that we intended to reach. So to give you an example, I uh, studied situations in which we need to interpret others' behavior, which is something that as leaders... Uh, we tend to do when we evaluate the performance of the people who are working with us or we are evaluating the performance of uh, competitors, for instance. And what the research suggests is that we tend to pay too much attention on the person's performance and sort of forget that the situations contributed to it. So imagine, for example, uh, evaluating the performance of uh, a new um, team leader or a new team member um, or a salesperson who is conducting sales in a market where it's very difficult to get sales uh, done versus another one in a market where it's very easy to get sales. And maybe the, the second person is performing significantly better than the first one. And so when it comes to times of evaluating that person uh, and thinking about maybe who to promote, you would be having a tendency to promote the person who's doing very well in a market where it's very easy to uh, get sales done. So even if you have full information about the market demands and the performance of this person, you will be discounting the information that you have about the situation and just to care about the performance level. So that is a case where uh, a leader or a manager would have full information but still uh, be likely to make the wrong decision in evaluating who to promote uh, because of uh, a particular bias that tends to affect our decision-making. So once again, I think that being aware of the type of forces that come in the way of good decision-making is a very important first step in trying to figure out how to be better decision-makers in addition to be good leaders going forward. Now, you did did see the, the three different flavors or the three different areas, that is people, strategy, and crisis. And we've also noticed that some leaders who have specific uh, strengths in handling crises, but they are not the greatest uh, evaluators, if you will, or making decisions in terms of people. Or some people are very good strategic decision makers, but they really uh, have cold feet when it comes to crisis. So are these three types of domains in decision making, uh, it's realistically possible for a leader to ace all of these, or they would inevitably be strong in some, and then they compensate by getting other people who can ha- help handle the decision making in the other areas. I think it's possible to build capabilities uh, that would allow a leader to be good across these different areas. Uh, One of the uh, things that my research suggests is that leaders vary also in their ability to deal with the anxiety and stress that they might come in during crisis type of situations. And obviously anxiety and, and in certain cases even fear can paralyze decision maker um, and lead them to get stuck into their decisions and reach outcomes again that they end up regretting. Uh, but being able to understand that you might be feeling anxiety 
uh, in situations of crisis might lead you to better prepare for those uh, for those moments. And again, uh, it's all about, uh, in my mind, uh, creating processes that can counteract potential biases coming in the way of good decision-making. So just to take an example from a different context, um, one of the organizations I got the chance to work with uh, for a while was uh, Disney, and uh, uh, there was a lot of talk about adopting practices that are used by Pixar, um, every time they engage in a project, after the project, there is a, an after-action review. And it doesn't matter whether the project was successful or it failed. What is important is that the team is sitting down, thinking carefully about what happened and what factors might have led to good or bad performance. And again, I think that this gave the team a much better understanding of uh, what could have come in the way of them not reaching the goals that they wanted to reach. Um, and when I was at Disney, uh, the team I was part of was uh, trying to use the exact same practice uh, to make sure that they were staying on track in reaching the goals uh, that they wanted to reach. With the people that we are talking about, which is like the leaders, do you think two different people going into two different uh, modes and like suppose one leader comes, he, he or she makes a decision in a given organization which takes them in one direction. And for whatever reason, perhaps this leader wins a lottery and doesn't want to work anymore, they move on and another leader replaces that individual. Now, they have a different DNA. Now, decision-making style also has an impact on the type of culture that you develop and the expectations you set for the rest of the crew. So this new person comes, brings their own style. That disrupts what it took years for the first leader to make. Do you think, is it possible for us to keep the decision-making and those styles become a little more process-oriented versus being an individual style so that organization doesn't go through this sign curve ride, if you will, based on one versus another decision taking uh, the seat or the throne? Yeah, so you're asking a difficult question because it depends a little bit on uh, the communication between the leader who left and the new leader coming in. I've, did, I've uh, seen and studied this type of transitions, um, and they could actually happen uh, in ways that are good for the organizations when there is, in fact, communications uh, between the two leaders such that the new person... Uh, can understand what it is that worked and uh, created the right culture for the organization. Um, it can be very disrupted when that type of communication doesn't happen, and oftentimes new leaders um, will come into a new organization to think that they can give it a fresh start and bring in their own perspective rather than taking in uh, what it is that the organization was doing well thanks to the other leader. But I think it's so possible. With better communication across uh, the leaders, it would be possible to keep the organizations on track if, in fact, what the leader was doing uh, before uh, was something that was good for the organizations in creating the right processes and culture. Let's take a quick break, listeners. When we come back, let's look at the speed of making decisions and what the impact can it have on the quality of the very decision that is being made. Is it, is it worth for us to uh, demonstrate that we are very agile, we take uh, split-second decisions where it could come and haunt us later. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back and explore. Take a look around. Is anyone in your office listening to music on a boombox? <laughs> Probably not. Because you stream radio through the cloud like a normal, well-adjusted person living in the 21st century. 
Know what else you can get through the cloud? Your business phone system. Yeah, switch to cloud-based Ring Central. Run your entire business phone system online and use it with your smartphone and tablet for as little as $19.99 a month per user. And then you can put that old PBX in the junk pile next to the boombox. Ring Central, phone systems reimagined. Sign up for a free trial at ringcentral.com. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So we did speak about uh, the business agility and everything moving at a warp speed, and then automatically we are expected, or it is an implied expectation that if we can only move fast when we make decisions fast. Now, do you think the speed could cannibalize on the quality? Yes, I think there are lots of examples where speed coming the ways of uh, good quality decision making, uh, and it can happen in two ways. First, when we uh, want to make decisions fast so we're under time pressure. We have a tendency to rely on our instinct a little bit more. And we talked about how our instinct and our gut reactions may actually lead us astray uh, because we're making assumptions that are wrong. And speed also comes in the way of good decision-making because it tends to focus on uh, – it, it tends to make leaders focus on just one option – um, that they want to take. And so we tend to discard other potential alternatives or different courses of actions that we could take in the face of the decisional problem that we are uh, considering. And as it turns so, out, considering multiple options can be actually quite helpful to decision-making. Now, while, while there is obvious issue with us kind of charging ahead at 100 miles an hour, but then if we don't do it and tell the world out there that, okay, we are going to take our time to consider all factors, and it, if it causes delay, it has its own losses too, because then you're trying to uh, be in that race where there's a competitive edge and you want to move to the market sooner than your competitors. So it's like a, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So what's that healthy balance that you think people and organizations can strike? Yeah, so I shouldn't, uh, I don't think the organizations should go to the extreme or being incredibly slow in their decision making processes, but they should also be, uh, thinking, uh, that the other extreme is not healthy. And so being somewhere in, in between where you're in fact not focusing only on one option and you're considering the value of other potential alternatives, uh, could be quite beneficial. When we consider one option for our decision-making and when we are too narrowly focused on the decision at hand, we tend to uh, forget to do something very basic, which is take a step back and sort of zoom out and look at the broader picture. 
Um, and so we might be forgetting about our competitors and what they're doing, or we might be forgetting about information that others are providing onto the problem, uh, and that might lead to bad outcomes. So taking a little bit more time and taking a step back and looking at the broader picture by zooming out can be quite effective. So when it is uh, decision-making authority is offered and also there is an accountability, some people will, of course, uh, will have the authority, but then they would shy away from the accountability. I know we, we know that leaders are typically not expected to do that, but then if you have the accountability and that could cause or instill fear in, 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 in a leader, do you think that could itself impact making the right decision? So there is some wonderful research on how holding people accountable and creating different types of accountability in organizations could be helpful in improving decision-making. Now, again, if you go to the extreme uh, by always making people accountable for their decisions or making always leaders accountable for their decisions, you might paralyze them uh, because you create too much anxiety around the decisions that they're making. Uh, so again, I think that it's a little bit of an act of balance uh, and making sure that leaders can, in fact, explain the decision that they're making, but they're also uh, not put under so much pressure that they get paralyzed because of the anxiety uh, created by the complexity of the decisions that they're making. Now, you could you could look at uh, training uh, of anything for you basically to prepare yourself for uh, different areas in your career and in your life. But when it comes to decision-making, the training could be pretty expensive, especially if you are uh, getting trained on cost of uh, organization's dollars. So do you think there is a way for you to groom people? Because one is to have them shadow someone else who's a leader who's making decisions day in, day out, and then see what they are doing. But when it comes to their own situations where they have to make a decision, it is still the first time or the uh, first time every time, literally, because not every time you make the same decision twice, especially at a leadership position. So what is your advice and what have you seen others do which grooms those people who have not made decisions in a new area earlier to be better prepared and reduce the chances of failure? Yes, so I'm sort of smiling as you're asking the question because I, uh, at Harvard Business School, I teach courses on decision-making and also negotiations, and uh, the reason why I love teaching these courses is because I strongly believe that uh, leaders and managers and any of us could actually uh, become a better decision-maker uh, by learning about the science uh, behind decision-making. So by basically learning about the research that uh, I do, but also my colleagues do, uh, being aware of the many ways in which our decisions can get off track and also trying to figure out how to apply concrete principles that can help us reach the goals that we want to reach. So I absolutely uh, am a strong believer in the fact that training can help uh, and the way in which training can help is by basically simulating potential situations that might happen in the future and allowing people to think through them and think about, again, uh, the forces that might intervene and that might lead to poor outcomes. Um, so when I think about the way I teach uh, decision-making, both in my classes but also when I do training for companies, is really giving the opportunity to managers and leaders to think through difficult situations uh, what is it that they would be doing in those situations, and what is it that could come in the way of them uh, reaching good decisions? 
And oftentimes we mention cases of companies that we studied uh, where we saw uh, some of these factors uh, taking place. For example, one of the cases that I use in my decision-making classes is a case I studied uh, in early 2000s of a uh, an Italian company. I love racing motorcycles, and so I was studying this company uh, called Ducati, where uh, what they do is actually racing motorcycles. And what is interesting about them is that uh, in 2003, they decided to enter a new type of competition where they needed to develop new bikes um, for a new, uh, basically to have new riders and new bikes for this different competition, and they had been very successful in another type of sports competitions before. And what is interesting about their case is that they set it out to be a learning season. So they put a lot of sensors on the bike, uh, they were collecting a lot of data, and their idea was it's okay if we don't perform as well this year, we're going to learn. And what it happened instead is that they started winning very early on in the season, and so they completely uh, changed their mindset, and they started winning, and they basically celebrated, and they forgot about the fact that they had collected. And by the end of the season, they redesigned the bike for the year later, for the second year, and they redesigned over 60% of the components of the bike without even testing them. And as you might imagine, the next season wasn't as good as the first one, and they, especially in the first few races, they uh, experienced very poor performance. So it's a great case of, in a sense, failure to learn because of this positive tendency of we are winning and so we can basically create new bikes without even testing for the parts and components that we're changing uh, and oftentimes when I teach this case, there is a lot of reflection on the part of leaders of how, if they were to put themselves in the shoes of the management team at Ducati, they could see how it's possible to end up in the same situation. And so hopefully these are uh, the type of uh, understanding and type of exercises that can help leaders get, uh, become better decision makers. Now, people say that any crisis that doesn't kill you actually makes you stronger. So do you think people have the emotional intelligence and the strength out there, at least the ones who are trying to become leaders and the existing leaders, so that no matter how bad the situation is, they can see the silver lining in the cloud and take that and put a positive orientation to it, and that would, in a healthy way, impact positively uh, their decision-making? I think successful leaders do that. I think successful leaders are those who look at their failures and try to understand and really diagnose what went wrong and what they can learn uh, and apply uh, into their future decision-making. But successful leaders are also those who ask uh, the same type of questions when they experience success or when their organizations experience success. We have a natural tendency to actually look at uh, our mistakes and failures and sort of reflect on those and try to figure out what went wrong and what we can learn. And we also have a tendency not to do the same when it comes to success. So successful leaders and uh, who are also good decision makers are people, um, as I can tell from my experience and my research, basically uh, reflect on their own performance and the performance of their own organizations, both at times of failure as well as at times of success. 
Let's take a quick break, listeners. When we come back, let's look at how do organizations uh, introduce decision-making for leaders or how do leaders take decisions when they're dealing with brand-new, uncharted territories, and, and especially given in technology the way the innovation is happening, the uh, disruptive approaches to how business will be conducted, how consumers are going to consume products and services. There are brand-new areas in which decisions are to be made. So what is it that can be done in order for people to be able to handle the people and the strategy and related crisis uh, when it comes to these brand new areas? Is it is it something new and different we have to do in the very theory and practice of decision making or uh, is it the same principles, old principles apply? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back and explore. Take a look around. Is anyone in your office listening to music on a boombox? <laughs> Probably not. Because you stream radio through the cloud like a normal, well-adjusted person living in the 21st century. Know what else you can get through the cloud? Your business phone system. Yeah, switch to cloud-based Ring Central. Run your entire business phone system online. And use it with your smartphone and tablet for as little as $19.99 a month per user. And then you can put that old PBX in the junk pile next to the boombox. Ring Central. Phone systems reimagined. Sign up for a free trial at ringcentral.com. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So looking at the type of decisions we make, especially in the technology area where there is a new innovation happening every second week almost, where new products and services are getting introduced. And frankly, the business and IT people both are very much uh, basically seeing this as an uncharted territory because there are disruptive innovations that are happening. When you are having almost a situation where one lead, one blind may be leading another blind, do you think we can accurately say that, yes, still better decisions will be made? Yeah, so uh, I, I actually discuss uh, the relationship of my research in the context of technology a lot with my husband since he's uh, in the software industry. And it seems like that no matter uh, what industry leaders are part of, um, the type of uh, the type of mistakes that we tend to make because of uh, biases that we do not expect tend to be similar. Um, so I think that one of the interesting components and features of being in the software industry or being in IT is, as you were saying, the fast pace. And one of the tendencies that might happen is that we uh, companies end up taking decisions just because they're imitating uh, the competition and they're not taking enough time to actually think through uh, what is it that is their value proposition and is it really a market that they should uh, be carefully considering um, 
rather than just looking at what others are doing in that particular space. So there is a particular force that I talk about in the book that is called uh, social comparison, and it's about the fact that we often look at others to evaluate our own performance or uh, to evaluate us on specific dimensions, and it seems that this type of social comparison can actually sway the decisions that we make uh, because, for example, in the case of IT, we might want to imitate a new innovation that a different company is trying to introduce, even if that's not really consistent uh, or is not on the top uh, priority list. Would you say that there are more often than not issues where sacred cows get introduced, which means CEO traveling on a flight sits next to someone who gives him or her a bright idea, or a, a technology decision maker goes to a conference and finds this new and shiny tool which promises great things, and then suddenly that becomes a high priority, and a decision is made to invest in it, and which may not be always in the best interest. Do you think organization could create an and uh, insulation mechanism so that they can literally uh, stop these sacred cows in or these imprompt, uh, basically impromptu decisions in or uh, impulsive decisions, if you will, uh, get taken just because somebody at the top said they want to do it. Yes, yeah, so we were talking about earlier about the role that emotions have in between our decisions. And so the type of emotion that we are talking about here is excitement about a new technology or a new product that we just heard about. And I think what often happens is that because of that excitement, we don't take the time to really evaluate if this is a technology that we should be investing money in uh, or that we should adopt. So uh, there is a principle that I discuss in the book that is called take your emotional temperature. And it's really as simple as asking yourself the question of whether emotions are clouding your judgment at the time of decision. And in the case of thinking about investment in new technology or adoption of new technology, I think that's a very valuable question to ask to try to understand whether we're interested in adopting something just because we are excited about the newness of it when, in fact, it's not consistent with our plan or something that we really don't need to spend the money on. Now, what you took, that you, you responded to this question from an individual who is to have the emotional uh, balance so that they don't get jazzed by this new technology or tool. We're talking about insulating organizations from such issues where the person says at the top, I want to get this implemented, and the rest of the crew says, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and they go ahead and implement it because the boss said so. But the organization suffers because of it. Can we, can we prevent this from happening? And then, you know, of course, deal with that individual later. Yeah, so it's interesting because I got to study an organization uh, called Teradan Corporation a few years back where the problem was exactly uh, similar to what you're suggesting, where the leader wanted to adopt new technology to keep track of the progress of a new project they were working on, and everybody at the bottom said yes, but in fact the tools weren't used and the project ended up being very delayed at the end. So I think that once again... Uh, there might be excitement that uh, a person has about the use of a new tool or new technology, and it would be uh, better if uh, the person that usually is the leader or somebody sitting at the top uh, asked uh, for the perspective of the people who are going to actually use the tool and make sure that there is the commitment from uh, these individuals to actually use the tool uh, that the organization is investing in. Uh, or the new technology that the organization would like to adopt.
And in the end, it's true that I was referring uh, to individuals, but in a sense, uh, I, I feel that organizations are not making decisions, but it's really the individuals uh, uh, who are part of these organizations and end up making uh, decisions. So I think the one uh, area to protect yourself against this type of situation is really uh, making sure that, that the leader is asking the right question to the people who, in the end, are going to use the tool or the new technology. One final question around the ethical area where decisions are made, but then sometimes people may have some agendas which other folks may not know, or it could be a group or an individual. How do you ensure that the organization is safeguarded against any of those ethical dilemmas or distractions, if you will, which could impact decision-making, and we can prevent that from happening by installing or instilling a process and a culture within the organization so that a few rotten apples don't spoil uh, the whole pack? So a lot of my research in the last few years has looked at the area of ethical decision-making, and one of the basic findings of my research is that uh, we often think we have a very strong moral compass, but in reality, both the uh, relationships in the organizations we are part of, the situations and the pressures that we are under might actually lead us to uh, cross ethical boundaries. And what the research suggests is that it's really important for the leaders at the top to set the right tone. And uh, oftentimes when looking at organizations, uh, you see leaders that are trying to actually set the right tone, but they're not really committed to it. So, uh, for example, uh, you see organizations spending a lot of time thinking about their codes of ethics, but then nobody actually talks about them uh, or seems committed to them. So I think it's important... Uh, to make sure that the decisions that we make are within uh, the boundary of ethicality is really important to create the culture, the culture in the organizations where, uh, with transparency, uh, activities related to ethics are discussed and talked about, um, and where the leader actually uh, makes it visible to the other members of the organization that he or she is committed to uh, ethics as an important dimension of the quality of decisions. On behalf of the show and our listeners, thank you so much, Francesca, for sharing your thoughts on how judgment can be made as the very essence of uh, leadership and decision-making can be increased in terms of quality and and accuracy when it comes to organizational decision-making. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions or thoughts, send us to views at ciotalkradio.com. That is views at ciotalkradio.com. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Join Sunjog All next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific for another hour of CIO Talk Radio. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by Citrix, offering go-to assist, remote support made easy.